Good morning, Gateway. Great to see everybody here. Um, uh, getting into the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, which is which is wonderful. Uh, some of you I know are, are shocked to see me in a in a jacket, um, but uh, as as I found out this morning, my my jeans and T-shirt were wrinkled. So here I am. Um, we're going to talk today about gratitude. What what does it mean? to have, have gratitude. And a couple questions came up this week in an article that I read. And here are the, here are the questions. Um, how did we become so sad? Talking about us as people that live in, in the United States. How did we become so sad? And how did we become so mean? Sad and mean. These are the questions that David Brooks uh, looks at in his article in the, I think it's September, no, sorry, August of 2023, Atlantic. Uh, Sad and mean. Let me read you some of what he wrote. He says, over the past eight years or so, I've been obsessed with two questions. The first is, why have Americans become so sad? The rising rates of depression have been well publicized, as have the rising deaths of despair from drugs, alcohol, and suicide. But other statistics are similarly troubling. The percentage of people who say they don't have close friends has increased fourfold since 1990. The share of Americans ages 25 to 54 who weren't married or even living with a romantic partner went up to 38% in 2019, uh, up from 29% in 1990. A record high 25% of 40-year-old Americans have never married. More than half of all Americans say that no one knows them well. The percentage of high school students who report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness shot up from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. Ouch. I added the ouch to that. These are hard stats, hard to to listen to. Um, He goes on. He says, my second related question is, why have Americans become so mean? I was recently talking with a restaurant owner who said that he has to, listen to this, he has to eject a customer from his restaurant for rude or cruel behavior once a week, something that never used to happen. A head nurse at a hospital told me that many on her staff are leaving the profession. Why? Because patients have become so abusive. At the far extreme of meanness, hate crimes rose in 2020 to their highest level in 12 years. Murder rates have been rising, uh, at least until recently. Same with gun sales. Social trust is plummeting in 2000, two-thirds, in the year 2000, two-thirds of American households gave to charity, two-thirds, okay? And 18 years later, fewer than half did. From two-thirds to half uh, in 18 years. The words that define our age reek of menace, conspiracy, polarization, mass shootings, trauma, safe spaces. We're enmeshed in some sort of emotional, relational, and spiritual crisis. And it undergirds our political dysfunction and the general crisis of our democracy. What is going on? You know, Brooks looks at um, 
the most commonly cited reasons for, for society decay. He looks at technology, right? The phones, they're easy to blame. Um, economic inequality, um, uh, COVID coming out of a pandemic. But he points out that we're, what we're missing is what he calls moral formation. I'm gonna end with, with this. I'll end his article. Um, the story I'm going to tell is about morals. In a healthy society, a web of institutions, families, schools, religious groups, community organizations, and workplaces help form people into kind and responsible citizens, the sort of people who show up for one another. We live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. Well, David Brooks is right. I don't think there's anybody here that's gonna really disagree. You might question, oh, where do you get his numbers from? But I think the general gist of what he's saying um, is, is spot on. I mean, that's my experience. Anybody that's, you know, uh, dri driven on 50 during rush hour uh, understands a little bit about meanness. Um, I commend the rest of the article to your reading. He talks about ways to establish those moral foundations, uh, you know, what to teach in school, etc. But I have to say his diagnosis, I, I, don't, know if it, I don't know if it goes deep enough. Um, I believe he's, um, he might be lacking, he might be lacking talk of, of a, a certain element, a superpower that has the potential to change each one of us. That superpower is called gratitude. Gratitude is a superpower. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at a diagnosis not from David Brooks, but from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Roman church. Uh, and we're going to find embedded in that diagnosis, Paul is going to talk about the remedy. And then we're going to look at two use cases or two case studies in the Bible. We're going to look at Joseph and John the Baptist and see how this superpower plays out. And then, of course, since it's gateway, I'm going to give you some homework. So uh, pray with me, please. You know, God, every time I come up here, I'm, I'm well aware I just have some words. <laughs> but I know if they're your words, then they have power. And I know that there's, uh, God, I know we're in all different places today. I know that some of us are, uh, we're really, we're good with you. I mean, we're good emotionally and spiritually. We're good. We're good. Others of us, we're, we're dragging, um, you know, and there may even be some of us who are, we're ready, we're, we're almost done. We're done. We're almost ready to be done with, with, with Christianity. And, and I know, God, you are, you're, you're able to speak to every single person where they're at today. And that's, that's what we're going to lean on today, God, as I, as I speak. I'm going to lean on you to to supply that power that, that I don't have to speak to every single one of us. So we, uh, we rely on you for that, Lord. Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to look at the book of Romans. And I, before we go on, Michelle is making me do this. I'm going to give a shameless plug to my Romans class that's starting in January. It's actually part two. So shamelessly, I will invite every single one of you to that class. Even if you missed part one, we'll get you up to speed. Okay, where's Michelle? Did I do okay? Is that, okay, thank you. Just checking. Awesome. 
So Romans, let me talk about this. So those of you that took part one of the Romans class, you probably know this better than I do. Um, Paul is writing to a church, a gathering of Jesus followers in the world's capital, Rome, which is like kind of like Washington and New York and L.A. all put together. Um, the center of the ancient world, he's giving them Christianity 101. He's going to establish them. He wants them to, to really get a sense of where he's coming from because he wants to make Rome probably his home base for, for missions. So he's going to give them what's critical for them to know. This is, this is critical. Um, we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, and it's heavy. Prepare yourself. This is heavy. Um, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Hold on. Wrath of God, God's opposition. Uh, Paul's being very, very clear. There's, there's certain things that God opposes, and I'm going to talk about them in a minute. Okay. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Just as an aside, it's really interesting. The Bible never argues for God's existence. Really interesting. It, it assumes it. It assumes it. And it assumes that people that don't believe, uh, that the problem is not on God, the problem is on them. It's not that there's not enough evidence, there's something wrong in here with those people. All right, people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Okay, bold that, underline, okay. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. We'll go on. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals are, are, and reptiles. Hmm. So, what is Paul saying here? He says, this is what happens when two things happen. All of these effects come from two things that, that are not there. When, when two things don't happen... Here's where we wind up. Now, we would expect him to say the first one, right? When you don't glorify God, okay, well, of course, glorify God means recognizing his greatness. We just sang about that a minute ago, right? Recognize him for who he really is, his goodness, his, his mercy toward us. Um, glor we glorify him. We would expect Paul to say that. If you don't do that, well, then not good things are going to happen. We expect him to say that. But Paul goes on. He says, not only do we not glorify him, but we're ungrateful. We lack gratitude. And because we lack gratitude, this is what happens. Let's move on to verse 24. It says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Um, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Okay, stay with me. Paul's going to go on a little bit more. He says, because of this, Paul, uh, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for, for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men 
received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Okay, and here Paul gives, he's going to give a laundry list in addition to what he just pointed out. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. They're mean. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Not light reading. You know, about five or six years ago, I had, had some trouble walking. I, my, my knee was, was acting up, and um, um, I needed an x-ray. So, you know, you go to the doctor, and, and they, uh, you know, they don't like to do MRIs, right? It seems like that's the case, because those things are expensive. Let's do an x-ray. So I'm like, all right, let's do an x-ray. Okay, the x-ray showed there was something in there that shouldn't have been in there. So then I got sent for an MRI, and the MRI said, uh, you have a piece of broken cartilage in there. It's got to come out. You need surgery. So this is Paul. Paul is MRIing humanity. And he's saying, here's what the issue is. But I want to draw your attention to something. He says, the cause of this brokenness, okay, people didn't glorify God and they weren't grateful. And what is the result? A lot of bad things. We are sad and we are mean because we have neglected the superpower of gratitude. Without that superpower, what happens? I want to get specific. Our appetites are out of whack. Notice how Paul said that? Our desires are disordered because we've neglected the superpower of gratitude. Even the most basic, like our most basic instincts, right, that are, you know, deep, deep with, even those are disordered. Um, and when our desires are disordered, that spills out into society. You know, we can't keep that tidy um, when our appetites are out of whack. I, I want to sit on this point for, uh, for a second because I think Paul is being really countercultural to American thought here. He's actually saying a couple of things here. He says, you know, one is, uh, get this, it's actually possible to want the wrong things. It's possible to desire things that are bad for us to have misdirected desires. So some years ago, um, our family vacationed with, with friends of ours. Uh, we went to Bethany Beach. You know, we rented a, one of these big beach houses. And uh, their kids were about, about the same age as, as our kids. And um, uh, the, the daughter of, of uh, my friend, again, young, young teenager, would get there to the beach. And she's talking about, um, she wants to go to the movies. Okay, she wants to go, but we're at the beach. Okay, okay. And the movie she wants to see is, it's R-rated. Okay, and it's, mm, it's one of those movies. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, parents are going back and forth with her. Um, okay, I want to, we're at the beach. No, no, I want to see the movie. I want to go to the movies. I want to see this movie. I want to see this movie. And my friend, the dad, in an inspired piece of parenting, looked up from what he was, he was reading, and said, you shouldn't want that. You shouldn't want that. You shouldn't want that. 
it is possible to want the wrong things. Uh, it is possible to want things that are wrong for us. You shouldn't want that. And I'll say this, you know, sometimes instead of celebrating our desires and, and making them a foundation for our identities, I think instead what we need to do is take those desires, sit them in a chair, shine a bright light on them and interrogate them. This is countercultural. Now the other, the other piece of that, um, our desires can be misdirected. I, I wanna just hang on this for a second, is that they're not private, okay. Um, you know, if you know me at all, you know that I really like food. I mean, I really, I really like food. And I've become a little bit of a chef. You know, I'm not that good, I don't think, but you know, I, I could make a, make a decent sauce and you know, some other things, make a really good baked ziti. I'm sure I'm gonna get emails now that, uh, okay, John, can we taste that baked ziti? We'd really like to, to taste that. Some of you are thinking, what on earth is baked ziti? I don't know. Okay, more on that when we have our next potluck. So, I really like food. The problem is I like too much of it. I like a lot of it. So, um, so a few weeks ago, uh, I had to bring the car into to the, to the state, to the mechanic. I needed an inspection on the car. So, uh, this is a true story. So I go in there and I see, I see the, the guy who usually does the car, um, I'm gonna call him, I'm gonna call him Ronnie, because I really hope to get him here one day and I don't want you to say, oh, that's him, because you're gonna know his name. Okay, I'm gonna call him Ronnie. So I, you know, hey, so I, you know, I see him, hey, hey, Ronnie, how, you know, hey, you know, can you, can you take care of the car today? So he doesn't say anything. He looks at me, he looks at my stomach, he looks up at me, and Ronnie's a, he's a short fellow. He looks up at me, and he goes, are you expanding? <laughs> True story. True story. So, of course, I have, you know, two thoughts. You know, one is, oh, i got to lay off those late-night snacks. My other thought was, I really need to get another mechanic. You know, my wife isn't here today. She's, she's uh, up in New York visiting family. She's like the advanced scout. You know, we're going to go up to New York for Thanksgiving. And um, she's probably watching this and, and thinking, oh, I haven't heard this. <laughs> okay, I'm cutting off that guy's desserts. That's it. We can't keep this tidy. We can't. When our desires are out of whack, we can't just keep that to ourselves. We can't. It spills out. It spills out. I believe what Paul is saying here is that your desires are disordered because you don't have gratitude. Because gratitude is a superpower and it has the power to bring order to our lives. Okay. Some of you are probably thinking, uh, um, wait a second. Wait, wait. Wait. Doesn't, doesn't Oprah do gratitude? You know, the gratitude journal and um, you, know, you know, like, where, where's God in that? Um, and, and some of you are probably thinking, well, there's, wait a second, didn't I just hear a podcast on gratitude about how, how it's good for me, right? And, and, and it is, but how it's, you know, it makes me, uh, you know, like, uh, more, more emotionally resilient. It makes me happier. Um, yeah, it, it, it is. And you're thinking, well, where's, where's God in, in that? I'm not really sure. You know, I know people that are atheists, 
uh, or don't really have a connection to God who seem grateful. Um, and I'll say a couple things. One is you're, you're correct in a sense. I actually stole, I stole the tagline, gratitude is a superpower, from Rain Wilson. Yeah, from, from the office. Uh, he actually spoke at a tech conference that I was at some, some months ago. Uh, it was really funny. You know, you have like CEOs of tech companies or getting up and talking about their, their latest, you know, latest and greatest tech that's just absolutely amazing. And then, you know, next thing I know, it's, 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 it's Dwight from the office. He's getting up there and he's talking about gratitude. So, so yeah, yeah, there is a certain sense that, you know what, gratitude is, um, it, it's, it's a reality. And for people that don't, don't have a connection to God, um, you can have feelings of gratitude, you can have feelings of gratitude, and that can have positive effects. But I'm talking about something different. What I'm talking about is gratitude uh, in the Bible. You know, always involves three elements. Gratitude in the Bible always involves three elements. You have uh, the giver, the gift, and the getter. <laughs> we'll keep it all G's. The giver, the gift, and the getter. So, so the giver is, what, what's the giver? Someone outside of myself who wants to do good things for me, someone outside of me that wants to do good things for me, who intentionally wants to do or give good things to me. For gratitude to happen, you need the giver. And then there is the gift. There's something that is good for me, something that is good for me. And, and it's, it's something specific. It's not just a vague sense of, I hope John does well. No, no, no. It's a gift. It's something. It's something specific that is going to do good for me. And then the, the third part is the getter is open hands. Is open hands. You can have feelings of gladness that something good has happened to you. And you can receive it, but without the giver, there's something missing. That's not true gratitude. You need the giver, the gift, and the getter. Another thing I want to say about gratitude is, you know, it doesn't just happen. Um, and it, and it, it's not just for certain people that, you know, some people, you, you could say, wow, this guy's really grateful, you know, or she's, she is really good at gratitude. Um, I'm really not. Gratitude is actually a virtue. That's a, probably the best way to think of it. Instead of just a simple response to something good, I'm either grateful or I'm not. It, it's a virtue. What I mean by that, it's, it's a practice. It's something that I can grow into. And to me, honestly, that is really encouraging because a lot of times I feel like I'm not that good at this stuff. I'm not naturally good. You know, and I'll say this. I'm not naturally good at prayer. I'm not naturally good at reading the Bible. I love to read, okay, but I'm not naturally good at this. I'm not naturally, prayer doesn't come it doesn't come natural to me. So, so I love the idea that this is something I can grow in. It's a language I can learn. It's a muscle I can strengthen. Gratitude is a superpower that can be learned. So if we see in Paul's uh, chapter 1 uh, to the Romans, if we see what happens when we don't have gratitude, let's, let's make it positive. What happens when we do have it? We need to look at some case studies you know, I'm going to look at just two because I think they're interesting. The Bible's full of them. There's tons of this. I could spend all day on this. But I found these particularly interesting and instructive for us. We pick up our first case study in Genesis chapter 39. 
Uh, a familiar story to a lot of you, if you've been around the Bible or been around church, a young man named Joseph. Joseph is the dreamer, rejected by his brothers, sold into Egyptian slavery, and he's done really well. He's smart. He's good-looking. Uh, he must have gone to a top Virginia college. Uh, he's, and he's actually he's running the entire household of an Egyptian official named Potiphar. But there is a problem. Um, it's Potiphar's wife. Did you notice, um, uh, if you bring up the scripture there, she doesn't get a name. <laughs> she doesn't get a name, which is really interesting. You know, you read the book of Genesis. I'll say this. Okay, if you, if you misbehave in the book of Genesis, you don't even get dignified with a name. We see that with the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh, okay, the midwives, they, they get names. The Pharaoh doesn't. Okay, I don't want to get on a side thing there, but it's really interesting. Okay, so who is Potiphar's wife? Well, uh, Joseph finds himself in the company of what I call uh, the original desperate housewife. And she wants Joseph. She is after him, boy. Day after day, she is after him. She is on him like white on rice. And Joseph says, no. He says no. And then one day, okay, there's no one else around in the house. Okay, okay. She, she grabs him and tries to, tries to jump him, and he runs out. And if you know the story, Potiphar's wife does him really bad and gets him in jail. So Joseph, how, how did you do this? She was wearing you down, man. How did you do this? Now, the scripture doesn't say it, but I imagine Potiphar's wife was, was probably not a bad-looking lady. I mean, she may have had some work done, but I'm assuming that she was probably, probably pretty nice-looking. She was trying to wear you down, and you didn't budge. Okay. There was no one else around. Joseph, this was yours for the taking. And you turned her down. How did you do it, Joseph? How did you do it? How did you have the strength to do that? And we find the, the answer to that in his own words. Listen, he says, he says um, you know, my master, Potiphar, he doesn't worry about anything here. Uh, and everything he owns, he has put in my hand um, he has no greater authority in this house than me, and he has not withheld anything from me except for you, Mrs. Potiphar, since you are his wife. So how could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Were you able to pick up the three elements in what Joseph said? He says, my master, the giver. The giver has given me. He has put everything in my hands, the gift. He's not withheld anything from me except for you. He is given to me. I'm the getter. Superpower. Superpower. Joseph's gratitude is a superpower. And here we see gratitude as resistance. Gratitude as resistance. Now, Joseph didn't pull this out of the air. Okay. This was Joseph's settled disposition. This was part of his posture. This was his stance. This is his way of being in the world. So that when temptation came, he was ready for it. 
you know, I think we have a tendency to, to read this, and, you know, we get hung up on the sex part. And, and of course, that's here. You know, I mean, we look at this and we think, oh, desperate housewives. All right, this, you know, this, this story is, this is ready for HBO. But I'm convinced this is less about sex than we think. You know what I think this is really about? This is about entitlement. This is about entitlement. This is really about Joseph resisting entitlement. Here's what I mean. You know, sometimes when we read the Bible, especially about one of the heroes like Joseph, um, we, we, we can look at what they do as kind of inevitable. We could say, well, of course, of course Joseph is going to do the right thing. He's one of the good guys. But this could have gone very different. Picture Joseph with a different posture. Picture Joseph rehearsing in his mind the grievances. Picture him. You know, I was, I was mistreated by my own family. I was sold into slavery. I was treated like, yeah. You know, and here I am, you know, Potiphar. He doesn't even know what's going on here. Picture Joseph rehearsing that in his mind. This would have been a different story. Instead, he was rehearsing the gifts that he had received from the giver. So here we see that gratitude is a superpower of resistance against entitlement. Brothers and sisters, we, we live in a country um, where, where people, and some of them are brilliant, they are spending lots of money, time, and energy to convince us to buy stuff and to participate in things uh, and mostly buy things because you know what? Uh, because we deserve it. <laughs> you deserve it. In the next few months, we're going to get bombarded. It's already started, you know? Buy this. You deserve this. Or the people in your life deserve it. But we resist. We can resist because of gratitude. It is a superpower against entitlement. A superpower. So what else does gratitude look like? I have one more case study we're going to take a look at today. John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. Okay, we're going to look at this in, in John chapter 1. Um, I'm going to read this. It says, uh, after these things, um, Jesus and his disciples came into Judean territory, and there he spent time with them and was, was baptizing. Um, John was also baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And they were coming and were being baptized. John had not yet uh, been thrown into prison. So, so John, John, this is in the New Testament now. John is on the scene. Um, and John was huge. John, John was a rock star. He was a rock star. But now, hmm, Jesus is on the scene. So listen to this. A dispute occurred on the part of John's disciples with, with a Jew concerning purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, okay, teacher, Rabbi, he who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, okay, in other words, that Jesus guy, about whom you testified, look, he, he's baptizing, and, and everyone's going to him. And John answered and said, a man can receive not one thing unless it is granted to him from heaven. You yourselves testify about me that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent before that one. The one who, who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. It is necessary for that one to increase, but for me to decrease. If the story of Joseph shows us the power of gratitude as resistance to entitlement, John shows us the power of gratitude to accept endings. The power of gratitude to accept endings. You know, sometimes we forget how, how big of a deal John was. Um, and I want to just spell this out for you a minute. You know, in, in the Old Testament, the writings of, of, of the Jews, the Old, the Old Testament, there are, there are two people that are foretold. Um, there are two people that are prophesied about. In other words, these two people are coming. Uh, and we're familiar with, with, with Jesus, the Messiah, right? All the way from Genesis, all through the Psalms, and then the, um, the rest of the writings, um, the rest of the prophets. You know, Jesus, we know that, right? Jesus' you know, coming was, was foretold. There is one other person whose coming was, was foretold. That's John. John was a big deal. John was the first prophet in Israel for 400 years. 400 years of a dry spell. And then John comes. He is a rock star. John has people, hundreds, probably by the thousands, that are coming. He's the center. He is the center of what is going on in Israel. He is the center. But that's ending. That's ending. John's time in the sun is closing. Rabbi, they ask him, that, that Jesus guy, he's taken all your students. You better do something. But what does John say? He says, a man can only receive what's given to him from heaven. In other, in other words, everything I have right now, this influence, these followers I have, this was given to me. This is gift. It's all gift. And I received it from heaven. I'm the giver. I, I've received it. I'm the getter. It's gratitude. It's gratitude. John is about to lose everything. He's about to lose. He's being replaced. He's about to lose. And, and eventually he's going to, very soon after that, he's going to lose his life. And he's grateful. Wait, what? He's grateful. You know, I was thinking about disappointment the other day, and Ed, Ed talked about this a few weeks ago, being disappointed with God. I don't, I don't think that's uh, uncommon. You know, I certainly, I, I, I've been disappointed with God. And, and I think a lot of times our disappointment entails endings. It entails endings. We expected our lives to be different, and our expectations, well, they come to an end. Because we get smacked with reality. I know for myself, I had expected to be a little further along than I am now. Endings. Our lives are filled with endings. Our youth evaporates. Okay. There are certain mirrors that I avoid now. I don't know if any of you are in that boat. Um, oh, don't like that one. <laughs> yeah. Our youth evaporates. You know, we raise kids. We pour into our kids, right? Those of us that are married and have kids, and then they grow up. You know, there's no, you know, cute little thing to, you know, hug my legs when I come home. Um, and sometimes they move away. Our jobs end. Our careers 
eventually end. Relationships end. We lose people we love. And eventually, this ends. We give up the clay. How do we deal with that? By having the same stance as John. Everything I have, everything I've received is gift. The whole thing is a gift. We can endure endings and not be crushed by them through the power of gratitude, the superpower of gratitude. We can face endings and be grateful, and be grateful. So, gratitude is the giver, the gift, and the getter. And that's what I've been saying for the last few minutes. But you know what? <laughs> that's, I'm going to tweak that a little bit. That's not exactly right. Because for Christians... The giver is the gift. The giver is the gift. God has given himself to humanity in Jesus. And that's the message of the rest of that book of Romans. As Paul spells out what it means. That God has given himself to us in Jesus. He has held nothing back. Uh, in, a, in a few short weeks, the whole world is going to be celebrating. Uh, in, in, you know, in, in certain ways, certain levels. But we're going to be celebrating a God who gave his very best that we might know him and grow to become people of gratitude because gratitude is a superpower. It's a superpower. Okay. All right. Um, there's so much I could say about this. I'm going to give you some homework. I'm going to give you homework for this because um, I really haven't talked about how to do this. Um, so, Ed, I guess that's going to be your job next week. How do you do this? Well, let's, let's make a start. Let's make a start. Two things I'm going to ask you to do this week. All right. First one is before you go to sleep at night, ask yourself, where have I seen beauty today? We need to train ourselves to be aware. Where have I seen beauty today? That's when you go to sleep. When you get up, I'm going to challenge us. Your first words out of your mouth Make them thank you. Make them thank you. Make them thank you. Where have I seen beauty? And thank you. And we're going to start to continue to grow in this superpower called gratitude. Let's pray. Lord, I realize that there's a lot more that could be said about this today. A lot more. And it's only your, it's only your goodness to us that, um, where we even can make a start. I pray for us, Lord. I pray for us that we can, we can become those people of gratitude. And Lord, I know there may be people here that they, they've never accepted that gift. It, it's, never, it's never made sense to them. And maybe some lights have gone on today for them. And I know that your, your arms are wide open toward them. And you are much more willing to receive them than they are to, to approach you. Thank you for those, um, those wide open arms. Lord, the rest of us, we're, we're all over the map by now. 
Uh, and we're going to be challenged. We're challenged now. We're going to be challenged in the next weeks ahead. God, remind us. Remind us of all you've done for us and all you continue to do for us. Lord, as best as we are able today, we say thank you. We say thank you for what you've done. We've got a lot of wonderful things in our lives, Lord. We have resources and people that love us. But, Lord, I know what's most important is what what you have for us in yourself. You have given us yourself forgiveness, acceptance, adoption. Thank you, Lord. Lord, make it real to our hearts, please. Otherwise, they're just words. 